This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Helena Wiesing, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking with uh, Petra Buskins about her book, Modern Motherhood and Women's Dual Identities, Rewriting the Sexual Contract, published by Routledge. Petra Buskins, PhD, is an academic psychotherapist and writer. She's an honorary fellow in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, a psychotherapist in private practice, and the author of Modern Motherhood and Women's Women's Dual Identities. She has edited three anthologies and written numerous book chapters and articles on motherhood, psychoanalysis, social and political theory. And in addition to her academic work, Petra is a freelance writer with op-ed articles published in Aereo Magazine, Unheard, The Spectator, and New Matilda, The Huffington Post, The Conversation, and others. Petra lives in regional Victoria, Australia. Petra Buskins, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on, Helena. So, Petra... Um, I want to open the conversation by asking you about the birth of this book. How, what motivated you to write it? How did it come into being? Mm, Okay. So this book very much emerged out of my lived experience. Uh, I became a mother and a single mother very early relative to my peers in the same sort of class and education and age demographic. So I became a mother at 22, just 22. Um, and, and I think that got me very interested in the question of freedom. And because I didn't really have any, <laughs> um, you know, I was mothering a child and I was on that sort of uh, clock of infant time. Um, and, and I had already gotten an honours degree under my belt, so, of course, I was thinking through the experience, and mostly the peer groups I were in were married women at least 10 years older than me, and what I observed was that they were in, you know, particular kinds of sexual contracts uh, around the domestic division of labour, and then if I saw single mothers, they were in, you know, other ones, and I saw a kind of underlying pattern, I guess, for so many of us who are social theorists, um, we're attuned to pattern pattern recognition and, and to patterns. And, and what I started to observe was there were, you know, uh, a range of positions one could adopt as a mother and as a woman to an underlying gendered division of labour and gender contract, let's say. And as a single mother, I could see fundamental limits to what I I could achieve and um, I guess out of that experience was my realisation that individual liberty was both 
you know, sacred in the kind of founding fathers sense to, to invoke your American legacy. Um, and at the same time, incredibly fragile and historically unique. So what was it that I was hankering for? I, I came to see that that itself was kind of quite strange in some ways. And then I, I kind of, I guess, uh, it evolved into an analysis of you know, my own personal life and, and living that and mothering my daughter and I was, uh, you know, practising attachment parenting and I'd home birthed. And so I quite embraced actually the experience of mothering um, and my parents were quite involved, so I was, I was very fortunate in that sense. Um, but I wanted to analyse the, I guess, the modern institution of the family and of motherhood and how it was that... Um, I guess individual autonomy was so fraught for mothers and yet so highly valued. So I both, you know, I kind of put myself in different positions around that, if that makes sense. Yeah, and as as we can hear, I mean, this is so rich, right? I mean, freedom. You So this is a project that takes on so much and coming from, as you say, your very direct personal lived experience, and then uh, a really big scale uh, project because this is a book where, where as we're going to hear, it's 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 a really a grand project. So before we get into talking about the book and the research you've done, um, I want us to, if you could if we could talk a little bit about the frame because like you're you're already talking about these the big patterns here. So the there are some really big historical uh, shifts surrounding, um, you know, th- this that motivated the book, right? I wonder if you could speak a bit to some of that that you saw that motivated your analytic thinking. Hmm. Well, I guess I was interested in the, you know, if we just go abstract for a minute, so separate maybe to some extent from my day-to-day life um, at that point in time, I was interested in the institution of motherhood, as Adrienne Rich calls it, the, the experience in the institution. She made that important distinction and how it had changed. So I was interested in, and hence your, you know, your um, description that it's a grand project, I was interested in the historical changes. So... I mean, I think I think we have um, pop culture versions of history that that aren't you know that, that are a bit fraught. So when we talk about you know there was an extended family, it's not as simple as that. Actually, there was a stem family, and that was varied in different contexts. But if I do that kind of broad sweep, and if you want to get into the weeds, it's in the footnotes in the book. But that that shift essentially to industrial capitalism, yeah. And, and to a kind of um, liberal democracy. And, and I was interested in how those two, an economic system and a system of production, let's say, if we put them as one, and the political system um, and its transformation in the early modern period came together to radically alter women's position. So prior to that, women worked on the family farm and it was communal and their uh, productive contributions were central. So it's not like women didn't work even though they were home. Yeah, they worked within the home in the domestic economy. And um, and that, I'm not suggesting that meant that they had uh, a similar political, legal or civil or cultural status to men, but they nonetheless were integral to the domestic economy. And, um, and, and so that change the Industrial Revolution and the movement of production into the factory and and the um, anchoring of capitalism to this new industrial model radically altered women's position. So what happened after that was that men on, uh, you know, again, I'm talking broad brush, but go into factory work or into into cities and women women then have kind of, there's, there's a split. When women are young, they work, but the minute they have children, that gets a whole lot trickier for women in the middle class and, and in the working class, actually. And I was interested in those distinctions as well, like how did that look 
for women in the working class? How did it look for women in the middle class? Um, and, and you know, I can't trace that entirely. It's in the book, of course, if people are interested. But, again, in broad terms, there, there emerged a conflict between paid work and mothering because the community structure of support and the familial structure of support disappeared. So often that's defined as just a middle-class problem, but it wasn't just a middle-class problem. It's just that it was shared collectively more so in the working class, yeah, because they still had uh, those kinds of community supports out of necessity that the middle class had differentiated themselves from. So running parallel to that, I was interested in the history of the family and the increasing sentimentalisation of the family. So what we see emerging there in the historical literature based on primary documents, <coughs> excuse me, documents, is this increasing sentimentalisation of both the um, marital bond and romance and of the mother-child tie. And so in the context of the, those two key changes, the economic and the political, we see both the sequestration of women to the home as labour moves out of the home and someone has to stay home to do to keep the hearth fires burning. And we see um, at the same time that the home um, becomes sentimentalised. And so women in the middle class, um, because of course in the working class they couldn't, they couldn't inhabit those identities and had to cobble together, you know, paid work and shared care. And um, But the middle-class ideal to which um, all ascribed because they set the terms of the ideal um, was for the mother at home and, um, you know, industriously attending to her family and nurturing the family. Um, and so that sentimentalisation of motherhood occurred concurrently. And then you get the birth of, at that same time, a kind of liberal feminism, obviously that wasn't the, the terminology used, but a feminism geared to women's individual rights saying, hang on a minute, if you've got political rights for, for men, what about the women? You know, and, that, and that's kind of the basis of the suffrage movement, just as it is the civil rights movement or the manhood suffrage movement. I mean, people aren't always aware that unpropertied men also didn't have the suffrage. So at that point, so you've got this really complex combination of factors. And so I did a deep dive in some ways in all of those to try to make sense of contemporary women's position, which is this conflict between our autonomous selves and our mothering selves and that public-private split that generated that conflict and that tension. And I was interested in how that both benefited women because what I what I read in the feminist literature were always these savage critiques, and I understood those critiques and where they came from, of liberal individualism, I mean, but it also was precisely what gave women the autonomy to become disgruntled with their domestic roles, yeah? So it was womanhood suffrage and uh, which began with, you know, women being recognised as having property in the person. They were the first fights, married women's property rights, to have property over their own body. Yeah, to say no to sex in marriage, essentially, which was uh, at that point still um, legally sanctioned. It was called coverture. So women's first fight was to control the property in their person and then it was to gain the suffrage. And, and I think that that was fundamental to defining women as individuals but at the same time the sentimentalised role in the home when everyone else had left became something that women carried and they carried it, I think, emotionally and psychologically, but they also carried it spiritually in some way in the culture. Yeah, they carried the ties of blood and sexual union into the modern abstract contract-based world. And they are the ties, the, the ties of blood and the ties of family. And so women are, are kind of holding these very different um, modes of being, let's say. And that's, I think, what produced the tension that used to be for a minority and now we would say is for most, if not all, women who become mothers. So this, this the, the fact that you, you connect so many things here, just I feel like it just really shows how the current ideals about mothering or motherhood and the family also in a culture is never just what that is like there's so much under the surface it really reflects these deeper historical shifts 
And uh, today we're, there's much more discussion about uh, these ideals of motherhood, critical discussion about that. So, so when you take this deep dive into the history and look at these big shifts, what's really interesting is that the things that we now in 2023 see as like traditional or old school is actually not that traditional. It's actually part of the process of modernization, modernity. So, and I found that so fascinating, this this paradox that what we call traditional is actually not traditional in the sense because uh, it's part of modernity. So I wonder if you could speak some more about this this split between the public and the private spheres and what was going on with that in um, in the process into the modernity. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's two parts to that and I'll just say I too find that very interesting and in the book as you probably recall I refer to Eric Hobsbawm's term invented tradition because we talk about the traditional family with a kind of 1950s mother in mind and that's traditional in the 20th century sense but in no sense is it like the pre-industrial family uh, where women were actively involved in um, the domestic economy and therefore in production and labour. They were no, there were no sense outside of that and yeah we've, we've invented this tradition that, that women um, women mothering at home in relative isolation from both the market and civil society is traditional and it's not. Yeah, it's modern, but it's early modern. So I guess we can forgive people for, for saying it's traditional. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's very interesting and, and relevant to the conundrum we're in. Now, the second part of your question was, can you just reiterate that so I can respond so the, to that? the split between the public and the private sphere um, this the, and and there's a lot going on with these spheres, and I know what you you have this deep engagement with Pateman uh, ba- uh, and her her theory, where you you wrestle with her theory, and you both agree and disagree with her on this whole question of the spheres, the separation of the spheres. Yeah. Okay. So, I think Pateman's book, uh, "The Sexual Contract," is the most important work of political philosophy in the twentieth century. Okay. So that often goes to other other books, um, probably notably. Um, oh, I'm having a mental blank now, but um, the the book on liberty um, by the Kantian philosopher. Oh, I can't think of it now. It'll, it'll come to me. Um, but, yeah, I think her, her work is really fundamental because, and that's why um, there's black scholars that have worked with her too, because she she brings in the tension of that which is left behind and most of the normative political philosophy books don't talk about what was left behind in the public-private split that then gets put into the private. And I think the reason why her work has also appealed to uh, black intellectuals is because uh, in the same way that women were positioned as the sort of harbingers of tradition and of, um, you know, other kinds of potentially less savoury things, although I think it goes both ways, but let's say nature and essentialist notions of nature, um, women come to represent that in the body politic. So, so with the slave contract that Pateman has also written about, do black people. And so there's this, um, I guess there's a model of liberty that depended upon those who didn't access it in the sexual contract and in the social contract. So um, John Rawls, that was the book I was thinking of. John Rawls's book is often considered to be the, the sort of key work of political philosophy in the 20th century. There's many, but his his notion of the veil of ignorance is that we um, we all participate in the social contract. This is a hypothetical exercise that we are blind to our position, and therefore it is in our collective interest to ensure equality of um, equality in in normative terms. Yeah, because we don't know who we're going to be. In, so behind the veil of ignorance, that's his intellectual exercise um, that, that sort of captures what, what in abstraction the social contract refers to. Okay, so I engaged with Pateman's work because I think Pateman brings into and problematises that notion because in the original social contract theories, which were themselves hypothesised notions, so even though they're written in the 17th and 18th centuries, 
they are hypothesizing about the transition from a state of nature, so to speak, in abstraction, to a civil society. And Pateman says, if you look at the documents with the notable exception of Hobbes, they all assume a male contractor. Um, and and they also, it's not, not like today, just gender-neutral language. They, they refer to the male contractor as being a property owner, and in the first instance, his property is his woman, it's his wife. And so she looks at the sexual contract inherent in and smuggled into the social contract and says this is why women can't be free within these terms because, because women are the terms and other terms that are being discussed at some level around defining contractors. Now, that, that is Pateman's theory, and I think, I think her theory is, is, uh, has genius. Uh, I mean, I think she, she analysed those documents and revealed so, uh, something deeply original in her analysis. However, I'm perhaps more of a pa- pragmatist than Payman, so my wrestle with that text, and I still wrestle with it, you know, my wrestle with that text is that she defined the category of the individual as anathema to women fundamentally. So it would always recapitulate the sexual contract, and that's quite theoretical. I can probably um, elucidate some examples to help that make sense, but I disagreed with her on that, okay? So I say that, yes, while the sexual contract does exist in and be, is smuggled within the social contract, so there's a there's a presupposition of a neutral individual and women are not that neutral individual because we have babies and then we care for those babies and that completely alters our relationship to the social, not before we have kids and potentially not after they've left the nest, although those bookends of life are not when careers are made and not when wealth is made and not when so, you know, so it has an ongoing impact, the sexual contract. So I agree with Pateman, but I still rescue the category of the individual as fundamental for women because I think it's the thin edge of that wedge that feminists have, uh, you know, and and by that I don't necessarily mean contemporary intersectional feminists because I think that's got a life of its own now and postmodern um, feminism that I disagree with, I guess, fundamentally around, as we've talked about, the sex-based rights position. But let's, I'm talking about first and second wave feminists, but I'm even talking earlier, the the, um, the feminists who were not yet called feminists who argued for women's the rights. The proto-feminists. Yeah, the pro- I call them that in the book, yeah, um, who argue for women's rights. And um, and and I think that was, was critical and, and I think it remains crucially important because it's one thing to deconstruct the category of the individual but what stands in its place. And that's where I'm more of a pragmatist, yeah, so... Uh, I, I want those legal rights for me and you and every other woman, even if they're flawed and fraught. And I think then it invites us to create change there. You know, like the theorists who said, yeah, okay, marriage is an institution, and again, related to the sexual contract that has historically, um, you know, oppressed women, but it's not straightforward, is it? There's always multiple layers in that. So that that's the kind of um, the analysis of the mid-20th century but then, you know, a whole lot of thinkers have come along and said we can reinvent the institution and the institution itself is, um, is not uh, coterminous with one particular expression of it, which is middle-class women stuck at home and not productive in, and able to participate in the economy or in society. So I think, I guess what I'm saying there is that Pateman's theory, I think, is um, profound and important and got ignored, of course, the minute the postmodernists came along, she, you know, this really, really important body of work. And I think some of that earlier work that we were talking about earlier, uh, Nancy Chodoro and the sort of feminist social theorists um, who were theorising the psychoanalytic subject and theorising motherhood and womanhood, they shimmied under the wire. Yeah, I mean, they were really critiqued from a postmodern perspective after, but they were publishing in the sort of late 70s. See, Pateman published in 88, 89, and Butler's, um, Butler's book came in in 1990, Gender Trouble, and that completely um, usurped the discussion and next thing we know you're an essentialist to talk about women as a sex. And so I, I went on a whole journey with Pateman and, and a number of other 
feminist thinkers did, but that was not the journey of the dominant, let's say, the dominant centre of feminist theorising. And so I think, and, you know, I presented on this at a conference that was a celebration of the 30th anniversary of the book that Pateman was at and presented at, and I felt that the book in some ways didn't receive its due because of that because of uh, because of the, the shift in the broader conversation in the humanities and the social sciences that was postmodern and within gender studies that was very much Butler and, and those around her, but she was the key figure and still is, actually. Um, so, so I think I embraced, um, I guess, uh, I worked with Pateman's theory, which is a theory of sex and, and the sexual contract, um, and the differentiation. So she talks about the neutral liberal individual in some ways being an abstraction that negates women, and I think she's right about that. So I think the move that I'm making in the book is um, is a complex one because I'm saying her analysis, her diagnosis is correct, that it is a neutral genderless individual. In some ways Butler is the natural heir to liberalism. But I think we can do a hard right and go where Pateman takes us, which is how do we have two individuals? And and Ira Garay and other, I think, other feminists who got dismissed as essentialists were trying to say that too. What does it look like to have sex-based rights, to to invoke that terminology, um, of the male and the female? And where I went with that was the recognition of women's procreative capacities and what that does to us as citizens. And it changes our citizenship. We are not the same citizens and so then you get into tricky territory do we have special rights just for women and the hardcore egalitarians would say no no we shouldn't and how do you do that in a way that's careful I'm not sure I don't have you know all the answers for that but I think we certainly need to recognize that we have sexually distinct citizens and that and that was what Pateman was saying but she said there's no room in the culture for that and I said you're right but we can make room if that makes sense, yeah, and and women as mothers. But then, of course, then the whole postmodern discourse came in which defined that as essentialist and said, you know, now we can't even say women are mothers, right? So we're in a really different place in the, in the landscape of social theory and social commentary. But that was where, that was the sort of germinal seed of my work and what I was trying to do with payment. I don't know if I've answered your question properly about the public-private distinction. Can I'll still go can- there. We can go get to that, yeah, because what you're bringing, you're touching on something also really important here. What I think is what I really find powerful about the book is that this this question here, where you t- the the category of the individual, you stay in the tension of that, right? You you stay because of this this conundrum of the separation of the spheres and what that has done. I found myself reading about how you, you just you stay in this tension where with the contradiction because we can't just like Pateman does say well the whole idea of the individual the modern individual is is problematic from a feminist reading you say well wait a minute this is also what opened the door you said that, that which bequeaths freedom is also that which can take it away it's it's so double so I wonder if you can speak to that, that because as a developing theory in that way, that's like, you know, requires a psychological capacity to stay in that tension. Oh, that's an interesting thing to say. One other person has identified that, uh, my friend, uh, the social philosopher, Anne Mann, uh, when she did the launch of my book, she and, and at other times in personal conversations, has identified that I sit in a place intellectually, because uh, I've done that in opinion pieces, which is the both and rather than the either or. Um, yes, I'm not sure how to speak to that. I would probably need a more specific question, but it certainly seemed to me as I sat with that dilemma as a young woman and as a mother that individual liberty and individual rights were fundamental to the emancipation of women, to use, excuse me, to use that kind of lofty language and to womanhood suffrage and our capacity to own property and leave a marriage and, um, you know, take out a bank loan, get an education. You know, it, it all rests on the civil individual. 
uh, which which women didn't have access to, and we, we've forgotten that. But you know, that was a fight, and it was a long fight. You know, if you think of some of the US um, key suffragettes, they they didn't see it in their lifetime. So, you know, I mean, I think it's easy to take that for granted now, and, and I'm not suggesting for a minute. Pateman does because I, I don't think she does. I think she came to that conclusion because she's such an erudite theorist, and I think that's the logical conclusion. But I think I, I, I put the brakes on as more of a pragmatist. Pateman's not a mother. I was single mothering. I was changing nappies. You know, when I was thinking about this, that brings <laughs> that brings a, a pragmatism in. It just does. Um, I'm probably you know just as theoretical in my orientation but that the fact of mothering and mothering in the way that I did which was countercultural I had a home birth I long-term breastfed and that that's not apparent in the book either you know you'd almost think I was kind of pro um a much more uh separated modernist rational mode of mothering but um that's another area where I sit in duality yeah so um I can adopt the vantage point of a leaving mother while I myself was practising a kind of attachment parenting. So what's going on with me with that? I'm not sure exactly. Um, there's probably a lot a lot of different threads that come into how and why I hold duality, but I'll talk about it theoretically and then personally perhaps. What I could see at a theoretical and a political level, and I'm, by that I mean realpolitik, the, the politics on the ground, is that without those rights, women didn't have the basis for, um, for you know, the, their modern um, identities and, and their, their rights and their capacities. So I wasn't ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I could see that it inevitably, once women became wives and mothers, inducted them into a kind of sexual contract that meant they were not simply abstract individuals in the same way. And I'm not suggesting men are either. I think men's ethnicity, men's um, individuality, like I think I think that ironed out all those differences. That's how we got the abstract conception of man, you know. Um, but women cannot fit into the abstract conception of man at all. Uh, and so I was interested in this dual piece around the um, liberation that women had gained through that concept of self, which was more than in any other historical period or culture in, in the modern West, I mean, that, that we have liberated women for all the flaws and problems, and, and I'm as interested in those as the next person. I mean, we've got higher depression rates than we had in the mid-20th century. The more women become like men, quote-unquote, the less happy they are. And I think there's real questions to be asked around that because I think an unmodified version of liberal freedom doesn't actually work for women for all the reasons in some ways that Pateman's theory invokes. But I don't want to throw that out either. I think that's the foundation on which we then transform the institution and and I think we do that one person at a time at, at, at some level. So um, so I felt that the, the institution of... Um, I guess individual rights was crucial for women, but that it needed transformation in order to work for women. And I don't think we've achieved that in the culture, but I think my book was at that kind of edge point, if you know what I mean. This is where we need to go. And then I think what happens is it gets derailed by postmodernism and intersexuality, sorry, intersectionality. And I'm not suggesting we shouldn't recognise differences but I mean the hyper-discourse of that that makes it impossible to talk about women without being defined as a bigot. So that when that happened, it became very difficult to talk about these issues. Uh, and so the conversation got derailed, but the problem didn't. So women are still doing the double shift, yeah? Women are still, have still got uh, far le- less aggregate wealth because they can't really manage both roles. And as the institution of marriage is kind of dissolving in key ways, who's still holding the baby? Women. So I think the problem got negated and and sidelined into identity politics and culture wars, but the actual problem of who's doing the work, that hasn't gone anywhere. Women are still doing the majority of childcare and they are still compromising their careers and earning capacity. And, and, you know, sometimes that's chosen and that's another whole conversation about what where is meaning to be found, well, often not in a dead-end, low-paid job. I think there's much more meaning in mothering, actually, and in the domestic economy. 
but are women able to actualise that? No, now it's almost mandatory to work with no recognition of the invisible work that women do. I mean, I'm sort of galloping ahead now, but, yeah. Yeah, and that, but that's, again, that, that, that problem with the private and the public because it, even whether you choose to be a stay-at-home mom or not or choose to work, Either way, I see in, in all the different, you know, classes and parts of society, we have gotten so far in terms of equality, in terms of, you know, of course, marriage law has evolved and education and, and all these things. But when it comes to motherhood and, you know, having kids, that's where you really see that something's happening there. Um, and there are, of course, different struggles for, like, for example, say low, a, a mother with low income and not having educational privilege versus someone with uh, having uh, educational privilege, different types of struggles, but both experiencing this struggle point in motherhood. So that, that, that struggle there... Um, is is I find it so interesting also from a clinical perspective and what we see in 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 the clinic, but uh, before we talk about the the clinical, how about we bring in because this is not just a theory you did you you actually did a, a an empirical study, so I'd love to hear some about that part and then we can connect it to also thinking about clinical psychology and mental health and things like that. Mm. Well, when I kind of, I came to the theory in some ways, uh, it, it, they're almost two projects, yeah, I knit them together, but they almost are two projects. And I think the theoretical piece, which um, maybe is more where, I think that's the enduring work, actually, the theoretical piece where I talk about women's duality in, in the modern, uh, in, in late modernity and where I kind of identify that we're free as individuals but constrained as mothers, that, that, cross, that crossroad that you talk about that, that actually cuts across class even though it's expressed and experienced and very differently and bought out of by the upper middle class and so on, it still has to be negotiated, yeah? There's no woman who becomes a mother that doesn't negotiate this, this piece. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, it is precisely because of that split in the public and private. I think that's become very complex now that we have the internet, yeah? Like we're both in our homes, for example, doing this interview. So I, I think that that has changed things fairly significantly from when I was writing the book. Um, but I don't think it solves the conundrum insofar as, I mean, you know, in lockdown, it was women who were grappling with how do I work and, and be at home? And I thought, you know, in some ways it really revealed the sexual contract even more than going out to work does, yeah, because going out to work then, you know, women lower down the socioeconomic spectrum look after middle-class women's children and, and there's the institution of childcare. So it still puts it in a sequestered location. You just create another class of people who do that work often for low pay. Um, so in a way, at, when the kids and the cats ran past behind people's screens, I felt like it was this wonderfully subversive moment where this whole piece around the private sphere that is sequestered out of work intruded right in. So we've got complex knitting together now. I'm actually knitting as we talk. Um, we, <laughs> we do. We have this complicated knitting together of the spheres that in some ways makes it harder and in other ways makes it easier. So lots of mothers, I think, are able to work now that we've gone digital. And yet I, I think that the digital is fraught in terms of surveillance, capitalism and, and all of that. But let's go back to your question. <laughs> maybe, maybe we can talk about, yeah, the pr private public. It's, it's more about, like you also talk about in the book, about paid versus unpaid work because that's really the big problem when we are all part of the neoliberal capitalist system that we all have our kind of competitors in, then whether something is paid or unpaid, is the, that's the, the big issue. Mm. Well, that public-private distinction, of course, um, sequestered a whole lot of work into the private sphere that used to be part of the productive economy. I mean, when you're raising a farmhand who's going to take over the family farm and who will at some point dig the potatoes, let's say, hypothetically, 
that individual and the labour that creates that individual is is recognised as worth something. Whereas the, the work that women do, which is essentially making people, yeah, literally we make them from our bodies, we birth and, and breastfeed babies, um, we we also nurture those people and socialise those people. You know, it's Sarah Ruddick's work around, you know, what is it that mothers do? Well, mothers do care work. And that didn't go anywhere when women added domestic, uh, sorry, added paid work, yeah, and that's where paid work has shifted from being liberation for a lot of women to being actually yet another uh, demand with the flatlining of wages. I'm certainly not suggesting women shouldn't work. I just think we need to have a conversation about the kind of work most women do and the remuneration of that work because it's far from liberating. And I think we didn't see that in the second wave when women added work and and the relationship between wages and, and commodities, for example, was quite different to now. So just to park that, though, I think when when women added work to their, you know, w- uh, work in the home, unpaid work, it, it just doubled their load, you know, and that was where that, that work in the 80s that came out that I think is most um is best captured with Ali Hochschild's The Second Shift. Uh, but, of course, there was quite a lot of work at that time on the double shift. And and my work on women's dual identities in some ways is heir to that. So I, I was looking at how, how do we subvert this conundrum, you know, and that's where, where the revolving mothers comes in and women kind of having time away from the family as one of the only ways that they're able to do that. Um, but I, I was looking at I guess this this dilemma that no matter the the talk that was in the media about you know men and women are equal now no they're not no they're not because women are doing all this work and that's the point about sex citizenship and and what I found in my my interviews and certainly I saw it in my life too was that women often wanted to do that work and I'm not saying that meant they asked for inequality I mean it means that we're not recognizing the value of that work because as far as I can see, and I'm hypothesising here, but most women would prefer part-time work that was well remunerated and and caring for their preschoolers, yeah? I don't think they don't want to work, and this was my point about dual identities. Um, but what I, what I glean from the research literature, the, the broad sociology of motherhood and, and of family and my own work is that most contemporary women would like to work and have autonomy, as I said, and care for their kids and not be placed in these double binds or um, having, you know, this excessive workload. And so I guess one of the I guess one of the bodies of literature I was steeped in was pushing back against the notion that men were sharing care or, or sharing domestic work because what the literature shows is that that's not the case. Women are still holding that. So adding paid work was adding to the workload and and that I think is integral to the stress of dual roles and we haven't really found an answer to that. And so you asked me about the empirical work. I free associated, I guess to use a Freudian term, you know, what might be an answer to that? And and I think a number of different threads led me to, um, you know, women women having what I called strategic absence from the home. And, and part of that, just to loop back to the history of the family piece that we were talking about before, the sentimentalised notion of motherhood arises when everyone else leaves the home, yeah? So men leave the home and go to the factory who used to be in the domestic economy, the head of the domestic economy, and the broader community. Also, you know, that that changes as people move to the cities en masse. I'm talking about, you know, the European peasantry now. Um, And and so there was this big shift. You know, there was a whole culture of, um, of apprenticeship, you know, where there were uh, young apprentices who would live in the homes of um, farming families, often not not their own, go to another one. So you've got this revolving community, not to mention, you know, festivals of the seasons and religious festivals. So as this secularises and individualises and, 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 you know, the community breaks up and moves to the city and enters paid labour, wage labour rather than the family farm, um, women are kind of left holding the bag at, at some level at home. Um, so I was interested in, I guess, what that meant in terms of the metaphysics. So that was literal, yeah, it was literally the case that women were sequestered to the home. But it was also, I felt, a kind of philosophical and metaphysical position 
which is that women kept the hearth fires burning. And then I got kind of, I went on a bit of a digression and I got interested in the literature of, of the late 19th century. As you've got, you know, suffragettes and later again, blue stockings and, you know, a whole debate about whether women um, can or should be free or, you know, will their uteruses atrophy and all the kind of mad stuff that was said at that time. I really picked up on a thread that I thought was clearest in some of that literature, Anna Karenina, Madame Bovary, Ibsen's A Doll's House, this deep anxiety about women leaving home. And what was that home? It was the kind of, it was a spiritual home in the culture that we'd lost with secularisation and industrialisation and the move to the cities that was a part of pre-industrial European life. And I felt women were holding that, were literally the hearth bearers of something there. And so the anxiety that plays out in art and literature is around, well, if women, if women become free too, who'll be at home? And that was this sort of very resonant, poignant moment for me that, well, nobody would be at home. And what is a culture when nobody's at home? It's a culture that's lost. And so I think that that is an underbelly to women's liberation always, yeah, that the individualisation of everybody is not really a society that I think anyone wants to live in if you don't have a kind of underlying moral compass and um, care-based particularist cultural frame. Because yeah, it's then the, it's the shadow side. Yeah, that's the shadow side. And then because essentially then you've got, I mean, secular individuals compete. It's it's ego-driven. It's uh, materialistic. Mm. So I think I was going to just say quickly, I think if I think about the radical potential, and I know this is lofty language, but of women's liberation, you know, it's that women bring that piece back in but not sequestered. What, what is that that we're missing in a secular materialist culture? We're missing the sacred and we're missing uh, an ethos of care and we're missing something that is quite normal in traditional societies and absolutely palpable in Indigenous societies, yeah, the, the care for the other, uh, the care for the earth. But, and, and I think, you know, it's really difficult. How do we talk about this without, um, I guess, uh, having essentialist language, but I'm not, you know, the, the more I move to middle <laughs> middle age, I don't care about being an essentialist anymore. I think, I think there is something women bring that's unique to the body politic and to culture. And I think there's something unique that women bring as mothers as well. Yeah. And, and I think it's immensely valuable and I think it's sorely needed in our culture. Mm. I, I, and I, what you're talking about there, as someone who I specialize in maternal mental health, and what I see in that field, uh, generally I'm speaking broadly uh, of, of that, the, the, the things that are talked a lot about, is uh, exactly this, this anxiety, uh, this, this uh, ambivalence between needing your, you know, to feel individualized, to feel yourself as an individual, because uh, that's how you were brought up. I mean, if you were certainly, if you're the young, very young um, Gen Z mothers, right? And then millennials, I'm elder millennial and, and Gen X moms, right? Like certainly those generations and, and in a way, maybe also the boomer generation moms where there was, it was starting, we've been brought up with that. Of course, we were going to you know, be individualized, right? It's hard for us to think outside of that. And then in that transition to motherhood, then we experience all these anxieties, both coming at us from projections and then internally um, wanting to hold, be the, the holder of the home, to be that facilitator of the individ this little individual, our child and other people in the family. So I just resonate a lot with these um, uh, you know, even if it's abstract theories, because it's just it resonates with what I see clinically, clinically, and hap or and happening in our in the cultural discourse. And I'd love to hear your experience with that, because you're also a clinician. So what if what are you also seeing in the mm. clinic? Yeah, I loved how in the questions that you'd sent me, um, you talked about that piece really resonating with your your therapy patients and with women that you'd met 
that that piece around the transformation free as individuals but not as mothers and yeah I, I think I think in in you're right about the the generations you know from I guess X's and to a lesser extent boomers too but generation because they were they catalyzed the crisis in the culture let's say in that mid 20th to late 20th century time around you know but hang on what about women we might we might be freed um, legally and on paper, but the culture still, you know, women are still basically in the home and and frustrated. So part of that cultural, countercultural movement was the release of women from the home en masse rather than just the blue stockings or the elite women who had careers, you know, the Margaret Meads or whoever. Um, I think, you know, I think that that was unequivocally a good thing, although with shadows and layers that I unpack in the book. Uh, and that I continue to see as, as shadowed. Um, I think um, <clears throat> I need to gather my thoughts for a minute. Um, I think the category of the individual and the individualization of women, you're right, we're born into that, we're born into a culture that does that, but underlying that is is this tension of the sexual contract that emerges at the time of motherhood. And I think the struggle for women is then I want to inhabit this. And, of course, if we think about Chodoro and Alison Stone and some of the um, psychoanalytic feminist theorists, women then reactivate a part of themselves that was dormant and already there. And that's not so evident in the book because uh, I don't weave in all the psychoanalysis into that book. Um, that comes later to some extent. But I think women then reactivate a dormant part of themselves and you could even go Jungian. I mean, I'm not I'm not Jungian in my own training or practice. I'm a little but bit Jungian. Like, I'm a little bit Jungian, so go ahead. Yeah, well, I am, I am too in some closet way or I don't know. I, I am too theoretically for sure. His notion of archetypes and the shadow I think is key, but it's almost as if women hold that archetype and then it gets uh, activated when they become mothers. And, and I think that that is a, is a complex alchemy of their own experience of being mothered by a woman, as Chodoro explores. So we're all of woman born and um, most of us are mothered by our own mothers and then in those early preschool years by a constellation of women from grandmothers and aunts to child carers and nursery workers and, and then, you know, your prep teacher and well, that's what we call the first year of school. Um, but it, it's a world of women generally speaking. And so even though modern individualised women, let's say in their late 20s to early 30s when on average women have a first child, that seems long, long gone because they've been, you know, teenagers and then they've gone to uni or they've done some kind of training, they've often travelled, they've had multiple love affairs, you know, that's what modern womanhood is in that youth period. Um, but that that molten core, let's say, of the maternal feminine excuse me, dare I use such a term, it's there. It's still there. It's within them. And I think that gets kind of reignited when they become mothers. So there's a conflict with an individualised self that let's say is a masculine self, and that's fraught because I think women are individuals because I believe in a sex-based um, or a, a differentiated model of the individual, even though that's not well fleshed out philosophically or in the culture. I do, I do believe that is the radical potential inherent in Pateman's theory that perhaps I was trying to nudge it just that little bit in my own work and in my own theory. What does it look like to have an individualised woman? Not an individualised woman who has to pretend to be a man, yeah, that works until a woman's a, woman's a mother or it works for a woman who can buy out of all the domestic work. But what does it mean to be a woman who is obviously a mother? Yeah, because so often women, women um, in some ways... They And it's certainly, you know, I had a mentor who was a baby boomer generation and she would say, if you have to call in sick for work, never say it's for the kids, say it's for you. Or never, never bring your motherhood in because it'll just besmirch your reputation. You'll be seen as not serious and not. And already I think Generation X have pushed back against that. And, and now I think there's, there has been shift in the culture where it's recognised, you know. Literally, you know, there's a there's a kid that <laughs> runs past the newsreader, you know, that, that early lockdown at that moment. And I thought, well, that's an interesting moment culturally where, the, you know, the incursion of the domestic is, is happening yeah. everywhere. The walls there's have been a, 
Yeah, there's such and there's such a hunger for this uh, critique because and, uh, there was that quote by um, Amy Westervelt, I believe her name is, uh, that women are uh, expected to work as if they don't have kids and to mother as if um, they don't work. That's um, right. That's right. They're the two ideals. And yeah. that, that quote went viral and people are still sharing it, you know, in the mama sphere, because it just so resonates with this this big uh, uh, the contradiction there. But but you you kind of talk about something there about this dare I say radical idea of the individualized mother. And what is what is the individualized mother? And and uh, so in your your project, uh, you you talk about like you mentioned the revolving mothers. I wonder if we could just hear a bit about that, about these the women that you interviewed because they they are really radical in in some sense or they're they're, they're mm-hmm. subversive. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, I will. But I just want to quickly say about the Amy Westervelt quote. In many ways, that quote sums up exactly my sort of theory of duality. You know, she. I think, fleshes out the theory with that wonderful quote. You know, it highlights that very point that they are mutually um, constitutive yet mutually contradictory positions. They both constitute each other. The individual is constituted by that which is left at home and so the individual doesn't exist without a private sphere, so to speak, and yet the mother who inhabits the individual position then is held to the ideal of the sequestered mother, which is total mothering. And that was new with the modern. So we get this separation that emerges where each side is kind of this hyper-liberalism and hyper-maternalism, yeah? And, and so that emerges in the, in the separation that each one becomes specialised and intensified, whereas prior to that there was more integration, yeah, so, so what I guess I see as the radical potential of the individualised mother is a reintegration a reintegration of the um, liberal individual with, uh, I guess, with the, uh, in abstraction, the values and the practices that were taken out, so subjectivity, intuition, bias, you know, all that gets taken out of the liberal sphere and get called, gets called private, and then the actual actions of, of what goes on in the private sphere, nurture, care, preference for some individuals over others. So how does that get knitted together? Because we don't want that in the public sphere. We don't want um, bribery or bias. We want to know that when we apply for a job, we're given the same chance as everyone else or we've got the same rights as everyone else. So we, we don't want to dismantle the liberal egalitarian um, ethos or, or the rights that come underneath that. But what does it mean to mobilise within after the achievement of that to re-knit back in the subjective and the intimate and the, um, I guess, the embodied and and how do we do that? And, and I guess at a practical level I was interested in the revolving mothers who perhaps we should define. It's an inelegant term but I picked it up from the literature. So there was, you know, in the literature there was a, a discussion about there was an assumption in the late 60s and you can find sociologies that say this, that, you know, once um, once women go out to work, men will revolve into the home and then they'll both share each role. And actually that's not what happened. What happened was women got two roles and men by and large stayed with one. And that was a co-creation of both men and women and in the fact that we birthed the babies. So initially feminists were all kind of, oh, this is not fair, this is unequal. But I think it's very, very layered and very complex because I think it is unequal but it has to do with sexual preferences or gendered preferences, let's say for care and for breadwinning, yeah. So I guess what I was trying to say with the um, or, 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 you know, find a way of describing with the revolving mothers was how are they maintaining their individualised selves and being mothers? And they did so by leaving home for periods of time. So I came across a number of women who would say, look, I can't get anything done. And they were academics initially and that was the world I was in. But then I, you know, I put a call out and found other women in, but they were all professional women. But they would say, I can't get a paper finished unless I go away for a couple of days. And I thought, this is interesting, you know. And then one mum said to me, you know, I can't even go shopping for a pair of shoes. So I I build that in when I go away (laughs) or get a haircut. 
and all those things that women, especially of young children, just put to the back burner indefinitely, sometimes for years, you know. I remember seeing a meme that had a woman answering the phone and it said, call me back in five years when my kid's grown up a bit. Like it's not call me back in an hour or a week, it's like in five years. So, you know, leisure time just gets collapsed completely for women when they're in that kind of that dual role when the children are young and it's still really intensive. But I think it goes on and on and on. And I mean, that's what Anne-Marie Slaughter's work was looking at. It's not like it ends when kids are teenagers either. either. In many respects, the needs go up again in terms of negotiating, you know, hobbies and and issues that, that teenagers have. So there's almost a kind of sweet spot with a bit of a bit of respite between maybe nine and 12 or 13 and then it kind of picks up again. It's I think it's a 20-year job and that's why I find this idea that, you know, oh, we'll have maternity leave for a year and you're sorted, then you just head back to work. It's absurd. We need to really acknowledge that mothering is a full-time job when it's done well and when you, you're focusing on it. It really is. And so anything you're doing on top of that is on top of that. And we just, we just don't talk about that. But one of the ways that I felt women managed the load was to leave altogether because they said, when I'm in the home, I tend to be the one in charge domestically. And I tend to, you know, and my husband will do X, Y, and Z, but this is what I do. But the way I get that time is to go altogether. So the nine to five doesn't work for women. And if you think about it, that really was a kind of industrial capitalist model of work that presupposed a wife at home. So what women... What I was listening to, and then I saw in my own life too, um, is that going away for a couple of days, they could finish a project or finish an assignment or, you know, meet with colleagues and, and have, you know, an exciting conference or seminar where they weren't feeling split like that to take off all the time. And, and it was one of the ways that their partners, if they had them, and most, I mean, I think eight of the 10 mothers had partners. Um, one was a two, no, two were single mothers and uh, one was a lesbian woman with a partner. Um, and, yeah, they, they found that their partner, who was usually the non-biological parent and um, usually the father, uh, didn't really upskill unless they went. So that's the other thing. Because of the nature of the sexual contract and men's and women's preferences, women tend to dominate the domestic sphere. And it's not only oppression, it's, it's about an interaction. And so I, I wanted to look at, you know, well, how, did, how does that get disrupted? What what might women need to do or want to do? And so um, I think what happened there, what I observed was that women leaving for, you know, anywhere from, you know, one day to up to a week, one woman went on an archaeological dig for, I think, two months and, you know, and stayed in really regular contact. And then how did that disrupt notions of motherhood that we call traditional that are actually quite modern? You know, because it disrupted that intensive mothering model that presupposes that children cannot ever cope without their mothers. Now, I think young children, I, I practice attachment parenting, do need to be with their mothers and and uh, infants, I mean, um, or, or mother substitutes. But so they need primary attachment. But I think um, at the same time, that notion of intensive mothering with a woman sequestered at home doing all the work. Um, without a community and without a village, that's absurd. So how to start to, you know, I guess intervene on that and bring in that support was what what interested me. And and these were mothers who were doing it. Um, And they were doing it through, I guess, in some ways just saying, I'm going, I'm going to do this, you'll be fine, you'll upskill. Initially they were leaving lots of food and lots of instructions and the men did upskill or the community who stepped in. Sometimes it was a... Uh, grandmother, you know, mostly it was a male partner, the father of the children. Um, and, and I thought that was interesting and important because it, it kind of it disrupts that model of nine to five work, which we assume works for women. And I don't think does. I think women work in circles in some ways, you know. They, they work very intensively and then want to have breaks. They, you know, they're often wanting to cook soup at the same time as they're thinking about a project. I don't, I don't think they work in that one or the other way and they don't work in that linear way and they don't work in the time pockets way, you know, of nine to five, I mean. And and I observed that just, you know, this is anecdotal observation and out of that I kind of developed the hypothesis and then and then interviewed these these women. Mm. And that, so that's the empirical component. Now I'm conscious. 
Yes, we are out of about to be out of time. So I mean, I could uh, just go on and on. And there's so much more about that, about maternal absence we could talk about. We'll have to do that another time. So uh, Petra, I just, I just wanted to, by the end here, ask you about any current project or future projects you're working on. What are you working on now? What's the next project? Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, I've got a, I've got a couple of projects on the go, but I'm feeling slow in the writing. So I'm still practicing as a therapist, uh, and I'm under contract with Polity to write a book called um, "Woman on the Life of a Troubled Idea." So I'm wanting to pick up on on these threads that we're talking about and look at, I guess, again, what motivated me with my first book was my lived experience of being a mother and how difficult that was to inhabit both persona, the the individual, the modern individual and the um, mother in the private sphere. Now I'm interested in how the political subject of woman has become so fraught um, and partly that's about the... Um, trans rights versus women's rights issue and and how culturally um, fraught that is. And it's also about the very construction of um, the category of woman as a a sex class because that in itself um, arises out of modernity in the early modern period. So I'm interested in that because, of course, traditionally, women were thought of in terms of their familial connections, not as a political class called women with a capital W. And so what does that mean, that political construction, and how is that playing out in the culture wars now? Uh, so, yeah, so I'm writing about that and I'm, I'm sort of looking at a range of things. One, it's motivated by the culture wars, but how there's a kind of bifurcation um, at the level of reality, so metaphysics. There's a there's a culture war about metaphysics now, and it strikes me that that's about, um, I guess, at some level, uh, a kind of hyper liberal and technocratic version of humanity and society. And um, some who are kind of saying, "Hang on a minute, I want to pause here and reflect. Do we want to keep going on that, you know, modernity train and that technology train and that?" you know, secular, hyper-rational, mechanistic train. I think there's many who are saying, no, it's time to stop and and pause. And I think it's interesting that uh, the category of woman has become the flashpoint for that. I mean, it's really, and, and so I think it's in part about life and about procreation and about the mother. And I think that's why the category of woman is at the, is the lightning point in the culture wars, because it has to do with a kind of, yeah, life force even, for, <laughs> for want of a better term. So this book, I want to look at the um, political and philosophical construction of the category of woman and how that plays out in the culture wars now. Yeah, so that's what I'm doing. That sounds very exciting. I look very much forward to that. Thank you so much, Petra, for your time. Thank you, Helena. Thank you.